There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. Thank you for being here. And those of you on Zoom and those of you that are watching the recording, we are in the uh, book of First Corinthians and we are we left off in chapter nine, right around verse 24. So what's been going on is a, a two chapter discussion. Somebody asked me tonight before the Bible study, why is Paul spending so much time on this eating meat sacrifice to idols? And so uh, the answer is because they had asked him about it and because it was creating divisions in the church. But beyond that, there's a broader question that affects us. Let's face it, nobody here is worried about eating meat sacrifice to idols that you buy in a grocery store or anywhere else. Just doesn't occur today. But the, the greater issue of Christian liberty, the fact that we have the freedom in Christ to do some things that are what people would call gray areas. And um, an example is um, having a half a glass of wine with dinner. There's nothing in the Bible that prohibits it. There's certainly being drunk is prohibited, but we have that freedom. And yet we ought to use that freedom and be willing to let go of some things if it's going to make somebody stumble who has a problem with alcohol or they think it's a sin. I just won't do it around them or you probably won't as well. So that's the broader issue. But he's going to turn it on its head in chapter 10. I'll show you when we get there by giving you some Old Testament examples. So. Paul has defended the fact that he's an apostle in chapter 9 and has every right to get compensated, paid in some way, for food and lodging and what have you, uh, food and drink for his service, and yet he chooses not to because some people have a problem with preachers doing that. So that's what we just came through in the previous uh, section. Now uh, he's going to conclude with some athletic metaphors here. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. amen. Good one. And uh, those of you on Zoom, so I know you're awake, wave or say amen. I can read your lips. There we go. Uh, okay. Um, just to conclude, uh, chapter 9, verse 22, to the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, he's willing to they have weak faith. They don't think you can have alcohol or eat meat sacrifice idols. He, he's willing to do that for the sake of the gospel, to not do it in front of them to make them stumble. I have become all things to all people, end of verse 22, so that by all possible means I might win, save some. Verse 23, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Verse 24, here's the athletic metaphors. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. He's using a metaphor about the Christian race, that we are running a race. Now, like every metaphor, it doesn't walk on all fours. What that saying means is you can't take the metaphor too far. Because if you take it too far, then it's a race. And I'm competing with him and her and him. It's not a competition. In a race, one person wins, unless it's a tie or something. But we are in a race. In a sense, we are battling our own flesh. We are battling the devil. We are trying to run the Christian race to the utmost for rewards. Second thing, when you run a race in those days, the Isthmian Games and the uh, Olympic Games were held in those days, still are, the Olympics are, and people would race and train for a, a year or more for one race to win or lose, 
And what they would win is a woven wreath to wear on your head made out of pine leaves, uh, apple leaves, grape leaves. There was a whole list. It's in the notes, which is perishable. It's symbolic, right? What this race is for Christians is not, I'm earning my salvation. If I run the race well, I'll be saved. We're already saved. We have faith in Christ. But we want to do obedience to Christ, spread the word as much as we can, run the race as well as we can for rewards, not for salvation. Wanted to just preface all of that. So run in such a way as to get the prize. In other words, try as hard as you can in the Christian life. Don't think that you can sort of, what's the least I can do to get through this? kind of thing. We ought to say, what's the most I can do for God since we look at what he's done for us? Amen. So all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone, verse 25, who competes in the games goes into strict training. That's true for athletic events, boxing, racing, whatever. But he's saying, all of this in a Christian context. What would the strict training be? Studying the word, disciplining yourself to not sin, to distance yourself from those places and people around whom you may uh, be more likely to sin. Strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, perishable. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. He's comparing how hard we work at some things. Maybe it's not an athletic event for you. Maybe it's your business or... Uh, building a new addition to your house and you're trying so hard, that's great. But he's saying we ought to be trying much harder at the things that matter because of the eternal nature of the rewards that they're not a little leaf thing that you put on the mantle and it starts to fall apart in six months. Therefore, verse 26, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. This is a picture of somebody that they, they fire the gun. Well, they wouldn't fire a gun in those days, but they would give the signal to start the race. And the guy's just kind of running all over the place. You want to run in a straight line for the finish line, right? Not somebody running aimlessly. And then the other analogy he gives is a boxer. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. This is, there's two schools of thought on this. Both are sort of the same. One is, if you've ever known anybody that's a boxer, they train in a variety of ways. Endurance, strength, and just hitting the bag and what have you. There's even shadow boxing or air boxing where you're really not hitting anything. You're just practicing throwing punches, right? My dad was a boxer, a professional boxer. So both of us learned how to box. He's saying, I'm not an air boxer. I don't beat the air. The other school of thought in this is a boxer who throws a punch and hits air missed, right? He missed the target. He's gonna lose. So both analogies have to do with uh, being a Christian and being focused on the purpose of, of what we are to do. You get that from the word of God. Amen. Verse 27. No, I strike a blow to my body or I buffet my body. It's sort of like saying I beat it up uh, and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Okay, so he's buffeting his body. He's in a sense saying that the flesh, the physical body and its needs are at least a distraction for a Christian and at most an enemy. 
because from within, we're going to talk about temptation in the next chapter. From within, that's where the temptations come from, our fleshly desires. And so he's saying that I make my body like a slave. I am, uh, there's that verse, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, not by the flesh. In other words, you're led by one motive or the other. We'll talk about that more in a second. Um, I make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I won't be disqualified. By preaching to others, he's winning the race, doing what he was put here to do. Now, in the races, both in the Olympics and in the Isthmian Games, they had a herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, an announcer, who would announce the next race is this, one mile or whatever it was. The, the contestants are, and they would name the contestants and where they're from. If anyone was to be um, uh, not disallowed or disqualified, the he would announce that this person is disqualified for the following reason, both before the race and sometimes after. Paul doesn't want to be disqualified. That's what he's saying. Um, for the prize. He doesn't mean losing salvation. He means a reward. One of the things we've talked about in this Bible study before that will disqualify you for a reward is the wrong motive. Well, I did really good things, but did you do it for God's glory or did you go around telling everybody so that you could get the accolades yourself? Was it for your, the praise of men toward you or was it so that men would glorify your father? That whole idea of don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you're giving. Not announcing to everybody, look how much I gave or look what I did kind of thing. All right, we're going to dive into chapter uh, 10 in a second. But the point is that the guy in the race or gal that's competing, it's all about the prize. And so it is for us to the reward of hearing well done, good and faithful servant. I'm well pleased, he might say, right? We're going to hear the word, word pleased in this next chapter. If we are disqualified for whatever reason, we may lose the reward. We're still saved. Um, the physical desires are never to rule. Paul is constantly disciplining himself uh, to deny himself. You know, when you're in a race or you're training for an event in any athletic thing, you have to let go of some fun things your friends might be doing, going to bed earlier, you're eating right, you're doing all the right things. So there were in those days ascetics uh, and even phylogelants. Uh, ascetics punished their bodies, thinking that by punishing my body, I'm helping to pay for my sins. God's pleased when I punish my physical body. Taking this verse way over the what it was intended. A flagellant was somebody who would whip, beat, and even torture his body to fulfill this verse. Crazy, right? Never uh, commanded in the Bible. So uh, we've been talking about limiting our legitimate liabil uh, liberties, sorry, um, for the higher goals, for the glory of God, for the extent of the gospel. Paul wants to get as many people saved as he can. So, um, and not making a brother stumble. So now, just when you thought we were done with it, in chapter 10, in a roundabout way, he's going back to the food sacrificed to an idol at a temple, a, a, 
pagan temple where there was feasts. Quick review. There were in the city of Corinth all kinds of pagan temples to um, false gods. Uh, Bacchus, um, Aphrodite, Zeus, all kinds of them. And they would make sacrifices and some of the meat would go to the person that brought it for the sacrifice. Some of it would go to the temple priest who did the pagan sacrifice. Some of it would be left over. The pagan temple would sell the meat at a discount. It had been sacrificed to idols. He spent two chapters, mostly chapter eight, explaining, number one, an idol is nothing at all. Okay, there's really no Zeus. It's a made up God. All the other gods, except the God of the Bible, are made up. Therefore, they're really nothing. So the meat isn't suddenly contaminated. It was fine when it was, the cow was walking around, but since it came in contact, there's some sort of spiritual voodoo going on. He's saying, it's fine. You can eat the meat. That's what he already said. But if you know your sister or your brother is going to be stumbling with that because they are not sure about it, don't do it around them, out of love. Love is more important than liberty, we said last week and the week before. So um, he's going to go now to the Old Testament. And at first, it's going to look like a non sequitur, meaning it's coming out of left field. Like, what does this have to do with anything? Oh, he's on to a new subject. The broader context is that the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi, thank you. Um, the, the Old Testament is the Jewish Bible. You understand that, right? But it is not just the Jewish Bible. It's in our Bible because those lessons, it's the same God. It's the same Messiah that's predicted. It's the same Ten Commandments, the same God wrote it and more than once in the new testament it says those stories are for our learning and knowledge the dividing line though is because there's another thing you could take to extremes oh the old testament's for our knowledge yes okay well the jews couldn't eat pork so it's a sin to have a blt or a pork chop god forbid says paul all foods are clean. The ceremonial law with all of that stuff and sacrificing lambs. Have we sacrificed any lambs lately at this church or any church? No. Why? Because the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world, right? And he fulfilled the law. So we're not under those laws, but the moral laws and the lessons um, of obedience, disobedience, and outright stupidity sometimes are for our benefit. Do, are you like me where you sometimes read the Old Testament and you think they had God speaking to them, miracles, and yet they're complaining and they're sinning and they're, how dumb could they be? And God says to me, how dumb can you be sometimes, Joe? Um, with that in mind, uh, Paul was willing to give up some rights. Last thing. The Christians in Corinth kind of were adapting this, adopting this attitude. We have it. Have what? We have it. We have diplomatic immunity in heaven. We've been baptized. We take the Lord's Supper. 
So that sort of nullifies all the other stuff that might look doubtful to some people. He's going to make an analogy. That's why you're going to see baptism and the Lord's Supper come up in a context you don't expect it to, which is the Old Testament, the Jews. Okay. Um, verse 1, chapter 10. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Good one. Okay. Chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, our fathers, we're all under the cloud and that they all pass through the sea. Who is he talking about? Old Testament. The Jews, right? Okay, backstory there. The Jews are taken into captivity in Egypt where they're slaves made to build stuff, made to do whatever the Egyptians wanted them to do. The Egyptians were very technologically advanced. They had little cell phones. No, just kidding. They were technologically advanced, so the pyramids and all that. And the Jews were slaves for them making bricks and all of that. Remember that story? Moses becomes the leader of the Jews because God chooses him. And finally, after 10 plagues, uh, Pharaoh lets the Jews go reluctantly. Okay. And somewhere between a million and two million Jews who were slaves in Egypt get to leave. In the Bible, Egypt is a picture of sin, the sinful world. I called my son out of Egypt, okay? It's symbolic that way in the Old Testament, that that is the sinful pagan world. God made fun of their, of their gods in those 10 plagues, and so they let the Jews go. But no sooner are they 20 miles down the road, headed to the promised land that Moses is supposed to lead them to, you know what happened. Pharaoh changes his mind and says, get the army together. I regret what I did. Let's go kill them all. So the race is on. The Jews are on foot. Here they come with chariots, horses, weapons, and everything. They get to the Red Sea, you remember? And behind them is Pharaoh's army. They're hemmed in. There's a sea, there's nowhere to go and we're unarmed. So it's just going to be a slaughter. There's no way. But God is the God of the impossible. He tells Moses, I'm going to part the Red Sea, which God does. Moses doesn't do it. He acts as the one doing it. It's God doing it. God parts the Red Sea and makes the waters congeal, almost like from water to jello. Okay, that's how I like to look at it. It's like a solid and they're able to pass through the Red Sea, a symbol of baptism we're about to see, going through the water. All the Jews pass through. Here come the Egyptians. When the last Jew has passed through, the Egyptians are coming through that same channel, probably looking, going, wow, that's some weird jello. And God uses the deliverance method of the passing through the sea to kill all the Egyptian army. Pretty amazing. You say, we already knew that. I know, but I bet there was someone that went, oh, is that what happened? Okay. Uh, they all passed through the sea. They were all under the cloud. Do you see that in verse one? He's calling, by the way, these are Gentiles. They're Greeks in Corinth. He's calling Moses and the Jews of that time, centuries before, our fathers, our ancestors. And they may have been saying, wait, I'm not Jewish. You may be, Paul but we're all related in that we are faithful to the true God. Okay, 
Now, they were all under the cloud. Do you remember that God, as a visual representation of his presence, protection, and provision in the Old Testament when they're leaving, um, when they're leaving Egypt, he appears to them as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, a visual representation, something you and I don't have, right, of God. You talk about evidence that they had that this God was real, right? At night, it was a pillar of fire. They all passed under the cloud. He's saying they were all united by the cloud and their leader. I'll show you in a second. But that they all passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea. Verse 2. They were all baptized, he means it in quotes, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, were they baptized? Jews invented, you might be surprised to learn, baptism. If somebody, if I was Jewish and my friend Randy was not Jewish and started coming to temple with me and said, you know, I believe all this, I want to become Jewish, they would baptize somebody and they would become Jewish. Okay, it didn't have the same meaning it does for Christians, um, but it meant immersion. The word comes from the process where you take a piece of cloth that's white and dip it in a color dye, you know, red or purple, and it comes up a whole different color, meaning I, look how much I've been changed. Uh, symbolism of baptism. They were all baptized into Moses, their leader. They're all united by this. He's going to make a point. It seems like it comes out of nowhere, but uh, it comes out of left field, but it's not. They're baptized into Moses in the cloud. They're baptized by the God they're following. God has uh, provided for them and protected them. And in the sea, right? They're walking through the sea. Pretty amazing thing. Okay. They all ate the same spiritual food. Okay, when they're in the wilderness, what happens? No food out in the desert, right? God provides manna, remember? Bread, miraculously, from heaven every morning. On the Sabbath, they weren't allowed to collect any. The day before the Sabbath, you collect two days worth. You can't sell it. You can't store it other than that, or it'll go bad. But it fed them. Personally, I believe it was the most nourishing food they could eat. It wasn't just Wonder Bread. kind of. Well, it sort of was, wasn't it? Um, it was some sort of special bread that um, fed their bodies and nourished them. God does other miracles there that are related but not mentioned. He also provides quail. Do you remember that? He also provides that their feet will not be getting uh, calluses and their shoes, listen to this, won't wear out. A little extra little miracle God throws in at no extra charge. Uh, so they all ate the same spiritual food. They're all baptized into Moses. They're all baptized into the sea. They're all under the cloud. They all see the word all, all, all in verse one and two and verse three. They all ate the same spiritual food. Notice the word spiritual food. Do you see that? Well, no, it was physical food. The manna was physical food. Yes, it was. But there's a sense in which it was spiritual food. 
In a second, we're going to talk about John 6, in which Jesus says that the bread that comes down from heaven is him, a person. I am the bread of life who comes down. He comes down from heaven. He's going to give them something that will give them life forever. More about that in a minute. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. I love this verse. We won't do it, but I could spend all night on this one verse. Okay, notice what's the subject of chapter 8 and chapter 9 again? Eating food sacrificed to idols, eating and drinking at a pagan festival. Okay, he's saying these people ate and drank the same spiritual food and drink. We'll get to the details of that verse. And that by doing that, they were united to the same God, to the same spiritual food, to the same baptism, to the same Moses, to the same, all that stuff. Okay. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. Now, in the book of Numbers, the Jews, uh, you really see it more than in Exodus, but you see it there too. The Jews started complaining like crazy. Oi, manna again. I'd love a sandwich, something else. How about some ice cream you could throw down? They're constantly complaining. Despite the obvious miracle, because if you've ever been in the wilderness and you waited for it to rain bread, you waited a long time. It doesn't It's not normal, right? Every morning. In the same way, in the book of Numbers, they get to this place and they say, Moses, they're grumbling. We're thirsty. We want water. Just no water. God, go, Moses goes to God. Oi, they're complaining again. And God says, take your staff. Think of it as a walking stick and strike that rock over there. Hit it and water will come out. Now, logically, Moses could have said, yeah, right. Enough for a, a million and a half-ish people. But he does it. He strikes the rock, water comes out. Now the rabbis, by this time, this is centuries later, had a tradition that the actual rock somehow followed them onward, and they came to another place and went, is that the same rock? Doubtful, okay? The other theory among the rabbis when they write about this stuff is that the, the rock produced a stream or river that went with them, the water kind of thing. Okay, which is true. I don't know. But this verse says something astounding for an Orthodox Jew to write, which is Paul. They drank from the same spiritual drink, same thing. You say, wait, it was just regular water. But there's a spiritual application we're about to look at in the book of John. Uh, chapter 6 and chapter 7. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was a person. Just like the bread from heaven ends up being a picture of, in the future, a person that will be the true bread. What does bread do? It gives you life. You don't eat, you die. 
right? He's saying, I'm going to give you spiritual life if you take my body. Now, he takes it to the extreme and says in John 6, and this causes a lot of people to say, I'm done with Jesus now. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. This is a culture of Jews where cannibalism was an abomination of a sin. It still is. I'm glad for that. Some of you look hungry. Um, the point is, um, so Jesus claims to be, uh, Paul claims that Jesus is not only the spiritual food, he's the rock that was Christ. Now, it's interesting. I don't want to take too long on this. In the book of Numbers, first time, as I said, Moses says, hey, they're grumbling. They're hungry. What can you do for me? God says, strike the rock. Follow my instructions carefully, saith God, throughout the whole Bible. Moses gets a staff, strikes the rock. Water comes out. Miracle. People should have said, what more proof do we need? Food from heaven, water out of a rock. All our needs are being met. He didn't hit the rock and Mercedes Benzes came out. Needs, not greeds, okay? But there's a second time in the book of Numbers where the people say, we're thirsty again. And Moses has just about had it with them. He's impatient. He's a human being. I get impatient. You get impatient. And instead of humbly going to God and saying, what do you want me to do? He does do that. And God says, this time, follow my instructions. I don't want you to hit the rock. I want you to speak to the rock. Just speak to the rock. Now, if you're Moses, it was weird enough hitting a rock and water comes out. What? Just speak to the rock and water will come out. Pretty clear. Don't hit it. Speak to it. Moses, in his anger, he so have had it with these murmuring, complaining Jews, goes over to the rock and says, shall I fetch water for you? <clears throat> Wrong. That's not. God's the one doing it. First mistake. And in anger, he gets his stick, his baseball bat again, and hits the rock. That's not what God said to do. In grace, may I say, God made water come out. But God says, come here. Gets Moses alone and says, I didn't say hit it. I said, speak to it. Because you did that, you won't make it to the promised land, Israel. Did you know that? We're about to talk about the percentages of who made it out of Egypt that got into the promised land. You'll be shocked how low the percentage is. Why, God? Because you didn't obey what I said to do. These are not suggestions. Follow my instructions exactly. So Moses is in the penalty box. You're saying he went to hell? No, no. He gets to see the promised land from far away, but he never he dies before the people go into the promised land. All because... He didn't do it exactly that way. You may say, well, isn't God kind of splitting hairs here? It kind of seems like a technicality. Poor Moses, he was angry. Listen, if the rock, listen, was Christ, the first time 
he appears, he's struck, meaning beaten and crucified. He's broken. From then on, if anybody wants to come to faith in Jesus, they need to crucify Jesus again. Wrong. Beat Jesus. No. Hit Jesus. No. If the rock is a picture of Jesus, the first time he's struck from then on, you know how a person gets saved? In tremendous faith, they're supposed to go to the rock, Christ, and say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I receive you as my Savior. Speak to him. I'm sorry for my sin. I repent of it. I make you my Lord and Savior. Now, Moses, God didn't tell Moses this, but the reason he gave those instructions was, you're acting something out, Moses. Jesus is the rock. We read it here. Now, go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go to John 6. I got to do this quickly because we're going rather slowly. Ah, let's see. Mm -hmm. John chapter 6, verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Okay. Um, so the Jews, verse 30, what miraculous sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? Come on, Jesus. Come on, David Copperfield. Do a miracle. Our forefathers, they explain, ate the manna in the desert. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Right? You know what we're talking about here. Jesus said to them, verse 32, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. He means himself. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, he means himself, and gives life to the world. Oh, wow. Verse 34. From now on, give us this bread. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He means spiritually, right? He, you will, if you come to Jesus Christ and he becomes your Lord and your Savior, you will not bother looking into Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, Islam, the New Age movement, atheism. You, you won't hunger spiritually. doesn't mean you have every question answered. It just means God comes to live inside of you in such a way that he fills that void that was inside of you. Let's keep reading. Mm -hmm. But as I told you, you have seen me, you still don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. I've come down from heaven. Look how clear this is, 38, to do not my will, but the will of him who sent me. Further on in that chapter, verse 41, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they start to grumble. In verse 43, it says, don't grumble. Mm -hmm. Now, verse 53. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. They're thinking, what are you, crazy? I'm alive. He means spiritual life. Ephesians 2, 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not sick, not injured, dead, spiritually. Whoever eats my flesh, verse 54, and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up at the last day. 
My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Uh, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, that means takes him in as their Lord and Savior. You ever heard the saying, you are what you eat? He's saying that's true. Um, remains in me and I in him. Uh, this is the bread, verse 58, and I think he's doing this when he says that, that came down from heaven. Your fathers, forefathers ate manna and died. He who feeds on this bread will live forever. Uh, look at verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Look at verse 66, which is interesting. I admit it's chapter six, verse 66. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Lost their salvation? No, never had it. They were there to check it out. Hopefully he'll do another miracle. He, you know, yesterday he blew my mind. Let's see what he does today. When it came right down to it, let's go. This isn't for us. Okay, now chapter seven. Because um, we've covered the bread. Now we need to cover the uh, water. Uh, look at verse chapter 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him, making you what if you're a believer? Sort of a little rock in the wilderness. You can't save anybody, but from you, the Holy Spirit will pour out the gospel in such a way that people will start, who are thirsty for the truth, will start drinking and grow and learn and become believers. Um, okay, enough of that. Let's go back to the text, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. They ate the same spiritual food, verse 4. They drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from that spiritual rock. That rock was Christ. The cloud, the pillar of fire, the manna from heaven, the miraculous water more than once. No shoes wearing out, no calluses on the feet. We could go on and on. The quail, the Jews, if they couldn't see this is the true God, let's not mess it up. They had to have been pretty blind. Watch what happens. Nevertheless, or but, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, you say, ouch, why is that? Well, he's gonna start giving you the reasons, but it's an absolute lack of faith, a total disobedience, the complaining we're about to see uh, as well. Um, so they complain about the manna, right? Do you know why? You know what they say? Boy, back in Egypt, when we were slaves, they had spicy food, they had grapes, they had all kinds of great. Looking back to their sinful life in Egypt going, you know, it was pretty great, really. And it wasn't. It's so silly. They were sick of, wait for it, manna cotti, an Italian dish. <laughs> anyway, sorry. You know, uh, banana nut bread, you know, or something like that. Anyway. He was totally nourishing them with an object lesson about his son coming in the future. Um, yeah, we talked about the rock. Um, same word, by the way, Petra, rock there as it is in, when Jesus uh, claims to be the rock. 
Uh, okay. Despite all those blessings, beside all, despite all those privileges, they didn't please God. Okay. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. This is the shocker you may not know. But somewhere between a million and two million Jews left Egypt to head to the promised land. Not counting the kids or the ones who were born in the wilderness, 40 years wandering in the wilderness, remember. Not counting the children born, because they did make it. The adult population that made it was two people. Joshua and Caleb, that's it. The rest of them died in the wilderness. You're not coming in the promised land, God says, with that sort of disbelief, that sort of rebellion, that sort of grumbling and complaining when I'm giving you so much more evidence than we have today, right? And we've got clouds outside, but I'm not sure that's uh, what their cloud was all about. Um, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Okay. So you say, well, this is, I understand everything you're saying. I still don't get where we're going with all this. Beware. That's what he's saying to the Christians in Corinth. Just like you, they were baptized. Just like you, they had the spiritual food. You guys think, oh, we have the Lord's Supper. We're good. We can do whatever we want. Not so. Uh, we've got to run that race in the proper way. Um, they lacked self-discipline, like the athlete at the end of the last chapter. They were self-indulgent. This is the dreadful consequence of disobedience. When God says something, um, he, <laughs> I won't say it, never mind. Um, there's a politician that's constantly saying nowadays, no kidding, no joke, it's not a joke. God's not joking. He means what he says. Um, in any case, uh, so they longed for that time they were in slavery. Uh, there's an association in the eating and the drinking that they did that they should have seen was spiritual, not just physical. They were so fleshly. God's not pleased with them. They end up dying. Now, verse six, these things occurred as examples to keep us He's saying, and that means you and me too, from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So they set their hearts on some evil things. Back in Egypt, we had this. They're complaining about the food. Um, they're speaking against Moses, God's anointed leader. Um, verse 7, don't be idolaters. Um, let's see, do we want to go there now? Um, no, not yet. Um, don't be idolaters. Keep your finger here. Go to Exodus chapter 32. You say, where is that? Way in the front of the book. Genesis, then Exodus. Second book of the Bible, chapter 32. Um, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, we did the book of Genesis, and then we did Exodus in this Bible study. Took a long time because you know how the teacher babbles here. Okay, verse 32, God tells Moses, come up on the mountain, I'm going to give you the, my law. Okay, pretty amazing. Moses tells the people, I'm going up to get the law, you guys wait here. They're afraid to go near the law, the smoke, and it's just scary. And 
Verse 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, where is he? How long does it take to get the law? Where? Oh, uh, chapter 32 of Exodus. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, oh, verse 1. Chapter 32. I'm starting at the beginning. Sorry. Um, so they're worried about Moses being gone so long. Right? When the cat's away, the mice are about to play. So they're worried about Moses. He's been gone a while. They gathered around Aaron, who's uh, the high priest, right? And they said, you know, we ought to just be faithful and wait for Moses. God knows what he's doing. Let's just behave and Oh, it doesn't say that in your Bible. Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, no, we can't do that. I'm a priest. Let's just obey God and wait. Verse 2. Take off the gold earrings that you your uh, that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, the golden calf. Remember, an idol, fashion it, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, "These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt." When Moses saw, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there'll be a festival, notice this, to the Lord. We're doing this for the Lord. What? It's crazy, isn't it? This is the idolatry. What's idolatry? It's worshiping anything instead of the true God. We don't nowadays do a lot of this. In some parts of the world, they do have idols they bow down to. In Hinduism, there's all kinds of idols and that kind of thing. Um, some Catholics get at the feet of the Virgin Mary statue and kiss her feet and all that stuff. But an idol can be money, fame, power, good looks, family. What did you say? I said family. If family's more important to you or me than God, guess what that is? It's an idol. If my career is more important to me than God, if my Rolex watch or my whatever is more important to me than God, that's an idol. This is a stark, crazy idolatry thing. So, so they next day the people rose early, verse 6, sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings to this golden calf idol thing. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink. What do you know? Eating and drinking again. And got up to indulge in revelry. Some translations say they got up to play. I got news for you. They're not playing Scrabble or Twister. The word play, the word revelry in Hebrew means an orgy. That's what it means. Sexual dances and sexual immorality. That's what they're doing. Idolatry, sexual immorality, go hand in hand sooner or later. Um, 
And then God talks to Moses in verse seven. We'll stop right there and we'll continue this in a second. It's time for our two minute break to stretch our aging bodies. Don't go away, we'll be right back. And those of you that are here, say hello to someone you don't know. I'll be right back, see you in a second. Find your seats, if you will, back there and your cookies. You people that live locally and you're not showing up, you're missing some great snacks. Anyway, thank you, Maria, for the cookies. Not sacrifice to idols. Be sure to mention that. Okay. If you wonder about this word revelry or play that I just mentioned was sexual immorality going on with the Jews while Moses is gone, look at the very next verse, verse 8. We're in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. God punished them for this. Uh, they should have known better. All the evidence they had, God was with them. This is a lesson in a way about not needing, listen, a visual representation of God. Having grown up as a Catholic, we had the statues. It kind of helped you to pray. I realize now the less of that, the better, right? Don't make a graven image. Go ahead, Ken, in a sentence, and I'll repeat it for the people on Zoom. Did God kill Aaron? No. no. But he didn't make it into the promised land either, though. He ends up dying in the wilderness, everybody, including Moses. Um, okay, so this is the golden calf incident. I read it in Exodus. What do you notice in 1 Corinthians? He never mentions the golden calf. I'm laughing because you're all watching going, Okay, it just looked funny to me. Anyway, um, but he never mentions a golden calf. Why not, Joe? Because it's all about eating and drinking. They had that in common, and yet they thought they were immune from everything, and they go off and sin with who? A pagan god, right? They made up their own one. We need a visual representation, Moses. Make us a god. Uh, not Moses, Aaron. And Aaron says stupidly, Bring all your gold here. Let's melt it all together and make a God. It's a crazy thing. And from that comes suddenly gross sin, probably getting drunk, doing other things, and then sexual immorality. We'll get to why that happens a couple verses down from here. Don't look ahead. I saw you looking. Okay. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Okay. Verse... Eight, those are examples. Don't be idolaters. Verse nine, uh, and, and don't commit sexual immorality as some of them did. In one day, 23,000 of them died. Okay, so there are two schools of thought on what we just read. One is the one I just gave you. That's the majority of position. He's talking about the Jews. They both agree, these two opinions but with regard to what we just read in Exodus 32. There is another theory, and that is um, uh, Numbers 25, where the, Jew, the Moabite women come into the Jewish camp and seduce the Jewish men to 
to commit not only um, immorality, but also um, sacrifice to their gods and kind of that kind of thing. You'll see that in the notes if you get the notes. Um, so verse nine, oh, we just wanted to cover that. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Okay, that's the incident I just mentioned. The question is, does that refer to the stuff before it or after? You say, wait, what's the snake thing now? Now you got me really confused. Okay, in that, uh, they're still wandering in the wilderness, the Jews are, and they start complaining and whining against Moses, against God. And this so angers God that he sends fiery serpents or snakes, okay? A bunch of them into the camp. And what's happening is the Jewish people are getting bitten by these snakes and they're dying. So the people all of a sudden get all religious and come up to Moses and say, help us, what's going on here? So Moses goes to the Lord and God says to him, I admit this is really weird, but I'll show you, it's not that weird. God says, okay, we need an antidote for the, I'm paraphrasing, for the snake bites. God brought that as a judgment on them for complaining and murmuring, same word. So he tells Moses, out of bronze, make a snake. One that looks just like the snakes. Snakes in the Bible, serpents go back to where? All the way to Genesis chapter 3. The devil appears as a snake. Snakes are, how many people like snakes? Can I see your hands? Okay. Uh, ladies, no? Really? Snakes are, most people don't like snakes. Snakes in the Bible are emblematic, symbolic of evil. You go, yeah, we know, move on. What's the antidote to the snake bites, which are the punishment for sin that God prescribes? He tells Moses, make a snake made out of bronze, put it up on a pole up high where everybody can see it, and anyone who looks at the snake will be healed. Weird. Why a snake? How about a lamb, God? Wouldn't that have been better? No, a snake. What are you saying, Joe? In the New Testament, Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of this. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying Jesus is a snake? No. I'm saying the pole is the cross, that Jesus, what it's a picture of is somebody is going to have to be your sacrificial Messiah who will die for the sins of the world by taking on himself all the evil and the guilt and the shame and the ugliness and the selfishness on himself. And notice, you don't have to strike the rock a second time. From then on, you just look to him, meaning look in faith, right? And in submission, you're also looking up, meaning it's a humble sort of a thing. So we should not test, by the way, verse 9, a lot of translations have the Lord. That's the way I read it. NIV has it correctly. The best translation is Christ. 
as some of them did. You're saying they tested Christ even in the Old Testament? Absolutely. And they were killed by the snakes. And don't grumble, verse 10, as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel in that incident. Uh, many, many of those Jews died. God doesn't kid around. You would think the people that were left would say, we, we got to do the right thing here and play by God's rules and obey him. He's righteous. The Corinthian people were eating meat sacrificed to idols, and they were sort of saying, we've got the Lord's Supper, we've got the baptism, but how bad can we be and still be okay in the little fenced area that's called Christianity? Like, how bad can we be? You know, it's human nature to test the limits. You ever notice that? Do not touch wet paint. Do you know what a lot of people will do? Oh, it's wet. No kidding. Sherlock, right? Um, so they were murmuring. They're complaining against God. Sidebar. You say, but I didn't live that many thousands of years ago. Let me say this. Do you complain more than you give thanks? Don't answer out loud. Or do you notice all the bummers and all the aches and the pains and the problems and the, and do you complain more than you give thanks? Let's talk about food. As an American, your garbage can or your garbage disposal, listen, eats better than 30% of the world's population. Your garbage can, your garbage, what you throw away and we throw away in my house is more than a lot of people get to eat, 30% of the world's population. Um, so Korah, Dathan, uh, Abiram in uh, Exodus 16 and 250 other leaders, they rose up against Moses. Um, the next day, uh, they grumbled against Moses for having the, 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 the death of those people were his fault. Anyway, God sends fire and consumes a bunch of them. That's what he's talking about. Uh, we already talked about that. So back to uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. You On Zoom, you guys okay? All right. Not commit sexual immorality. Shouldn't test Christ as some of them did. We were killed by the, and they were killed by the snakes. And do not grumble. Don't complain as some of them did. By the way, whatever you have to complain about, and yes, I have things I have, I could complain about. But if you made a list of the things you could complain about versus the list of things you could be thankful for, you would run out of paper on the thankful side and need another pen because you'd run out of ink. There's way more to be thankful for. God wants us to be thankful. And they were killed by the destroying angel. Same word for the angel that killed the firstborn in Egypt where they had come from, the Jews. So, uh, no, wrong verse. Verse 11. These things happened to them, there it is again, as examples. The word is the same as types, pictures of stuff that we ought to be able to relate to our lives. As examples, and they were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Does that mean Paul thought the end of the world was coming next week when he wrote this? No. 
We've been in the last times, the Apostle John says in 1 John 2, since the resurrection of Jesus and the birth of the church in, uh, on Pentecost in Jerusalem. We've been in the last time. Another way of saying it, the culmination of the ages is the church age, right? A day is coming when the church age will end, and for a very brief period, God will turn his attention to Israel one last time. Seven-year tribulation. Um, okay. I'm still looking at notes here. Pardon me. Uh, let's see. So can we study the Old Testament? Absolutely. A bunch of examples as warnings for us. Verse 12. So just like the Jews, I'm, in, I'm inserting that, but it's true. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The Jews had the same disease Christians have, some of them, overconfidence. I've got this. I've got the freedom to do these things. And he's about to talk about whether things are allowed versus edifying, building up. That's going to come up a lot in a second here. Um, let's see. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's verse uh, 12, right? Yeah. Okay. So they were selfish. They were self-focused. Um, that kind of person is the last to know that they're vulnerable. Some examples in the Bible of overconfident people, besides the Jews he just mentioned, the Pharisees, they knew the Bible inside out, the Old Testament could quote it. They had it down. And the Messiah came and they totally missed it. Peter, the apostle Peter, you will all betray me, Jesus says. You know what Peter says? Do you remember? Not me. These guys might, these jokers, not me. I would die for you. That same night, Jesus tells him before the rooster three times, you're going to deny me right? Peter just heard that. Jesus gets arrested, right? Peter is so confident, he goes with John and hangs out right in the midst of the enemy by a fire, remember? And a servant girl says, hey, you're, you're one of his apostles, aren't you? Denial number one. Me? No, you got the wrong guy. Remember? Three times. Overconfidence. Be careful. We do not listen, live the Christian life by our own strength. That's what Peter was doing. Jesus tells Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And so you're not going to fall? No. After you've recovered, strengthen your brothers. He knew he was going to deny him. Pretty amazing. We are in that same sort of danger. I'm a good Christian. I can go in a bar with a bunch of people that are drinking. I'm just not going to drink. And you might not. But might make another Christian stumble. You might just have one drink or 11. Right? Because two, three, five, nine. We, uh, Ephesians 5.18 be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Literally in the Greek, this is how it reads. Be being filled continually by the Holy Spirit. What do you mean? I got the Holy Spirit when I believed. I know. But we're, this is a Christian saying you'll hear all over the place. We're leaky vessels. We need to be constantly being filled by the Holy Spirit, in tune with God, in tune with the Word, in fellowship with other Christians. If you are um, on a diet, don't go into a bakery just to smell all the candy and the cookies and all that stuff. If you're an alcoholic, don't go near uh, the sin that's out there. And that we're going to cover in a second as well. Um, we stand to the degree, listen, if you remember nothing else, remember this. We stand, you and I as Christians, to the degree we submit to the Holy Spirit, recognize in humility that we can't live the Christian life on our own. When we obey God, it's the power of the Holy Spirit, and we submitted to it. When we deny God, when, like Peter, when we sin, when we succumb to temptation, that's when we're resisting the Holy Spirit instead of resisting the devil. Um, do we want to talk about that yet? Uh, let's see. Verse 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation, verse 13, has overtaken you except what is common to man or mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That verse, uh, I don't consider it my life verse, but that verse changed my life in 1979. I came to a real turning point. I, I knew what I believed and I knew I wasn't living it. And I lived in Rio Del Mar near uh, uh, Aptos, Santa Cruz area and living a sinful life, but getting more and more and more convicted and resisting hearing God. And, and it just kept coming back. And so I bought a scripture memorization little kit, little cards on one side, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, on the other side, the verse. I bought art paper this big and in felt pen wrote out a bunch of verses and I put them on my bedroom wall, all different parts in the closet, all over the place so that I could see them. And I this is one of the first verses I memorized because I always thought I'm sinning because you're allowing me to be, this is way more temptation than most people have wrong. Look at the verse. 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to mankind. Common to mankind in Greek is one word, and it really means human. In other words, don't say, I've got more temptation than most people. We all are tempted. And Satan is so smart about tempting people that he knows what would tempt me doesn't tempt Ken or Jeff. And what would tempt Jeff doesn't tempt Diana or Les or whoever. He's very good at what he does. Okay? So this says, number one, verse 13, that temptation is a part of life. It happened to Adam and Eve in the Garden, even, Garden of Eden. It's been happening ever since. Amen. And so it's common to mankind. That's the first thing. 
The next thing is God is faithful. That means not that God has faith. That's what the, the um, name it and claim it people say. See, you need to have the faith of God. God has so much faith, he can just say stuff and it happens. If you had that kind of faith, you could say stuff and it would happen. Not biblical. Who speaks as though thing, speaks into existence things that are not? God, right? He created the world. Go try to create a world right now with your words. Good luck on that. What's the point of this, Joe? Okay. God's faithful. What does that mean? When he makes a promise to protect, to provide, he keeps it. That's what it means. 80% of the time, 100% of the time. There's no human being that does that, by the way. Everybody will let you down sooner or later, every human being, me included. God never does. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. That's an amazing verse. That verse says he limits temptation. Satan would just go hog wild on each one of us. God says that's enough. He, he won't let you allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat. Satan wanted to destroy Job in the Old Testament. Do you remember? And were they destroyed? No. Peter fell. Jesus reinstated him. Okay, so this says there's always a way out. Watch. He won't let you be tempted beyond what, you're, what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out or a way of escape that you can endure it. You may be able to endure it. Uh, New American Standard is the version I memorized. Okay, what's going on here? Keep your finger here and let's go to the book of James. That's what we need to do right now to keep you awake. Go to the book of James. So way toward the back about, I don't know, nine books before Revelation, I'll say. Hebrews and then James. If you're in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, you got to take a left. If you're in Hebrews, take a right. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. When tempted, not if tempted, it's when, it's a matter of time. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Temptation always has as its goal, sin. Would God want that? No. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Never blame God. You shouldn't have put me there, God. You shouldn't have let this, you shouldn't have tried me at this. But each one is tempted when, verse 14, by his own evil desire, fleshly lust, he, he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Okay. So there's a way of escape in every temptation. Okay, that's good, because I'm going to the casino and I'm going to be in the bar all night tonight because there's a way of escape. Listen, sometimes the way of escape is before you even go where God's going, you really shouldn't be going there. Sometimes the way of escape usually is not, listen, grandiose, miraculous where um, somebody's tempting you to steal something and an alarm goes off in the building and you go, let's get out of here. And you, 
thank you, God. What a spectacular miracle. It's usually very simple. It might be nothing more than your conscience and the Holy Spirit within you saying, don't do this. You know, this isn't right. Don't do it. You know what we do when we're already kind of in the cookie jar? We do la, la, la. We don't even want to hear, right? So there's a way of escape. The problem is we need to be prepared for the temptation ahead of time. Um, remember, what we do reveals what's in our hearts. It reveals what we are, doesn't it? And you look at Peter. He was warned, right? And if you think that whole situation out, aren't you one of his disciples? He could have said, you bet. I love the Lord. And if you're arresting people who believe in Jesus, go ahead and arrest me too. You can't kill my spirit. I'm already saved. What, it, what was it? Peer pressure. Remember that when you were in high school? Come on, everybody else is doing it. Well, they are. Not everybody, but almost. Peer pressure, trying to protect yourself instead of letting God protect you by the truth. Okay, um, so we have to resist temptation. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The three sources of temptation are the world, the flesh, and the devil. What do you mean by the world? The world philosophy. Well, I don't read philosophy books. Do you have a TV? That's worldly philosophy for the most part. Even the commercials are racy. They're, they're pushing motives to do things that are not Christian, right? The world. The world system is anti-Christ against Christianity, right? They ridicule it. Um, they're pushing an agenda. And whether we know it or not, it's slowly being, we're being indoctrinated by it. So if you watch TV for three hours a day, may I suggest read the Bible for four? Oh, I don't have that kind of time. You got the time to watch the TV? Turn the TV up. Be careful. We mute commercials in my house because there's, a, and we're careful what we watch otherwise. Um, okay, the world, the flesh, that was the James passage the desires from within. We said this about three weeks ago. The word for desires in Greek is thymia, okay? You say, why do I need to know that? The word for uh, fleshly desires in the Bible is not thymia, which is just a desire. It's epi, over desire. Let me give you an example, um, several examples. I, as the head of the household, I wanna support my family and earn some money. Thumia, desire. Nothing wrong with that. We're supposed to. Don't be a slouch. Take care of your family. Epithumia, I want to have more than everybody. And I want to show it off with two Rolex watches, one on each wrist, so you people know. Epithumia, sin, greed. I want acceptance from people. I want love. Thumia. God-given desire. Epithumia. I want love from whoever I can find it from. Woman, man, whoever. Over-desire. 
Every sin is an over-desire, a healthy desire taken way to extremes. I want to eat. Well, that's normal, Joe. Epithumia. I would like three burgers, four fries, and yeah, I'll take the chicken nuggets too. Gluttony. Epithumia. I want four cookies instead of three. I saw some of you. Okay. Now I made you feel guilty for the cookies. Sorry. I'm still looking at notes. Here's the good news. A day is coming when not only will there be no temptation whatsoever, but in that day, you won't even be able to sin. You say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, right? In heaven, you think you're going to be tempted to, I'd like to steal his crown. When I, you won't even be tempted. The sin nature will be dealt with completely. There'll be no devil, no world, no flesh, no devil to tempt you done the sooner the better jesus come back um the way of escape yeah that means the sin is not irresistible remember flip wilson some of you are old enough to know who flip wilson was the devil made me do it remember that no he didn't he might have nudged you a little he did it on your own okay we beat that dead horse. We got five minutes left. Most of you are asleep, but let's keep rolling anyway. What do you say? Um, he'll provide a way out so that you can endure it. By the way, it gets easier and easier. You say no to temptation Thursday. Friday's temptation will be a little easier. Saturday's way easier. By Monday, it gets even easier. Two months from now, even easier. You get used to saying no. On the other hand, you succumb on Friday. Saturday morning, there'll be another temptation, and it's a little harder. I'm just going to do it one more time, and that's it. Sin, like drugs, like alcohol, is addictive. It's addictive. And it's bad. Okay, we know, Joe, move on. Verse 14. Now we're back to eating idle meats again. Therefore, my dear friends, Flee from idolatry, worshiping of other gods, flirting with worshiping of other gods. That's what they were doing. Watch. Um, okay, we need to cover that. Idolatry, yeah, we already talked about what it is. They have the liberty to buy that meat at the temple butcher shop, the pagan temple, and take it home and eat it and not even ask, but going to where the actual pagan feast is going on is crossing the line. This is written to the strong Christians, the one that we're sure I'm standing. No, you're not. Watch. Flee idolatry. I speak to sensible people, verse 15. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ, the cup of blessing? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. What's he talking about? Talking about the Lord's Supper, okay? In the Passover Seder, in the meal, in the whole thing, there are four separate cups. The third cup is the cup of blessing. That's the one Jesus was doing uh, when in the Last Supper, most of you may not know this, the Last Supper, 
was not just let's have a meal and we'll roast some hot dogs. Do you know what it was? It was the Passover meal with Jesus as the host celebrating with his friends. The third cup, the cup of blessing. What's weird is there's the wine and there's the bread and there's no lamb. Oh, no. He is the lamb, right? Okay. Let's keep rolling along here. I'm reading notes here. Don't walk on the edge with these pagan festivals. He's saying, don't estimate, overestimate your ability. Walk closely with God. Um, okay, but what's he talking about here with this? Um, uh, what he's talking about here. Okay, first of all, notice the word uh, beloved. My dear friends, NIV has, it really is the word beloved. Flee idolatry. Isn't the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks communion, the Lord's Supper, we're giving thanks that he shed his blood for us, right? He gave more than anybody ever gave. Some gave all, you ever heard that? One gave all, Jesus Christ. And the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Just like the Jews ate the bread from heaven, it was a participation in Moses and in God in the same way He's saying, when we do that, that's our little feast where we thank God, worship him, thank him for his shed blood and his broken body. That's what the bread is. You know all this. There's one loaf, he says, verse 17, who are many, uh, are one body. We, I'm sorry, who are many, are one body. We all share the one loaf. He, listen, this is the analogy. We're already involved in a feast. It's called the Lord's Supper, where we worship the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son. So he's saying, and he'll say it more next week when we have time to go through it, starting in verse 18. Um, let's read it right now, and then we'll talk about it next week. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? The Jews, they do. Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans, we're going to have to talk about this a long time next week. Verse 20, shocking statement. The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. First time he's mentioned this. Before he said, really, an idol's nothing. And he's right. This is the temple of Zeus. They're sacrificing to Zeus. This is the temple of Aphrodite. They're sacrificing to Aphrodite. But those things don't even exist. However, every single idol that is worshipped has a demon or the devil himself standing behind it going, bring it on. They receive that worship. That's why it's dangerous. We're involved in one table. Don't get involved in that table. That's what he's saying. We'll take it up more next week. We're out of time. If you have a question or any other concern, email me and um, you can mail the cookies to post office box. Let's close with prayer and we'll get out of here. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of this passage. Thank you that we have the Old Testament and those examples. Thank you that we have the true bread, Jesus Christ. We have the true drink, the water uh, that Jesus gives that springs into us, uh, comes out of us so that we can bless others with it. Thank you that you have provided for all our needs, including a way out when there's temptation, God. Help us to seek that way out and not even get near to or stand near the edge temptation-wise.
Help us to glorify you and be willing to forego our freedoms if it's going to make somebody stumble. Help us to remember that the world is watching and that you're watching, God. May we live lives that end up hearing that you are pleased with us, Father. Thank you for these truths. May they change the way we live, God. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for being here, those of you on Zoom. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know here in the room before you leave, or maybe two people. Have a great night. God bless you. Thanks for being here.